If you have your Bible, please turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 17. And today we're finishing up our three-part series in the famous David and Goliath story. And we've been calling this series, God's Help for Our Giant Problem. Uh, we're going to finish up this series. And then for two weeks, I will be away. We'll have uh, guest preachers come and share God's word with us. And then on September 13th, uh, when we kick off the first of two fall series, uh, we're going to be looking at a series called The Best Rest, where we are considering a biblical view and a biblical theology of rest. And so as we are finishing up 1 Samuel 17, I invite you to stand. And in our standing, it is our act of worship to read and receive God's holy word for our good and gracious God speaks to us. So here now the reading of God's word from 1 Samuel chapter 17, starting with verse 48 and reading to verse 54. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Shei-Raim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines. They plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. And would you join me in prayer once more? Father, your word is given to us as a great gift. Whereas other religions say we need to work our way to discovering or finding or reaching enlightenment, uh, we have a God who condescends and reveals himself. That's what you've done in your word, your life-giving word, your very word. And so open up our hearts to hear and open up our minds to understand and then open up our lips so we would respond in praise and adoration. Holy Spirit, encourage us. Convict us, build us up, help us to cast our eyes off of ourselves and onto Christ our King. In his name we pray, amen. You know, the Bible is a very big book with a lot of things written in it. And one of those things is that it tells us how we should live our lives. And so 2 Timothy 3.16, a very famous passage of scripture, will go on to say, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, saying that the Bible is good for us. It equips us to do good works. But the Bible is primarily not a book telling us what we should do, but it's a big book about a big God telling us about a big thing that he has done to address a big problem that we find ourselves in. And so in the verse right before this, what Paul had originally said in verse 15 was this, the sacred writings, the scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The Bible is primarily a book telling us about how God has saved us. And so our meditation in 1 Samuel 17 has been primarily concerned 
with what God has done for us in Christ, with the big thing that our big God has done to save us from our big problem. And in order to communicate that, the Bible lets us know very clear that you and I, we are not in the category of big things. We're in the category of little things, of small things. Because when the Bible gives us this story of God's redemption, it's clear you and I are not the hero in that story. In fact, when the Bible speaks to us, it says, well, you are in the story. Don't worry about that. You're there all right. You're just not in the role you expected. Because the Bible in various places and in various ways makes it clear to the reader that you are in the story, but you are always and only the one who is in need of rescue. The Bible gives us this wonderful story of redemption and then places you right in that story and says, well, you're there, but you're the damsel in distress. You're the princess locked away in the tower. You're the sleeping beauty under a curse. You're the servant girl trapped at home and never allowed to go to the ball. And it does that in 1 Samuel 17 by showing you exactly who you are. You're the fearful Israelite on the sideline of the battle. You are shaking and trembling at your knees because you're waiting and you're watching for a champion to come and fight a battle that you know you cannot fight. Then the Bible quickly tells us who the hero is because in the story of God's redemption, it reveals, it's no secret, Jesus is the hero. Now, it's clear for us in the New Testament that that's the case. Is it clear for us in the Old? Well, Jesus is truly in the Old Testament, but he's present in shadow form. However, in the New Testament, it becomes clear that that, those shadows that we see, they were all cast by Christ. You know, B.B. Warfield, who is one of my favorite theologians, especially with a name like that, B.B. Warfield, this guy with the epic beard of a man, he one time said, that Jesus is in the Old Testament, much like furniture is in a dimly lit room. That is truly there, but because the lights are so dim, you can't see it. Now, you may make out some shadows of it. You may walk and it hits your knee and you feel that there's a coffee table there, but you can't see it clearly. And he says, what happens in the New Testament, the coming of Christ in the age of the spirit is that the lights are turned on and all that you saw there in shadow form, outline form, you now truly and clearly see. So too is true when we read 1 Samuel 17, that Christ is the hero of this story. And so, yes, you're the damsel in distress, but Jesus is your knight in shining armor. Yes, you are in the story. You're locked away in a tower, but Jesus is the one who rescues you from your imprisonment. You're in the story. You are sleeping under a curse, but Jesus awakens you with a kiss of life. Yes, you're in the story. The neglected, ignored, disdained servant who's kept from the ball, but Jesus, he calls you and he dresses you and he invites you into the great banquet of heaven. And it does that in 1 Samuel 17 by saying, you are the fearful fearful Israelite on the sideline, but Jesus is this greater and better David. So everything in this story about David is actually fully fulfilled in Jesus in history. David is a shepherd, but Jesus is, I am the good shepherd. David was from the tribe of Judah, but Jesus is the royal lion of Judah. David was a brave champion who fought for his people, but Jesus was a great champion who laid down his life for his people. David was the conquering king over a Philistine, but Jesus was the conquering king over death and Satan. 
And so it's clear, Jesus is the hero. That's the point of the story. Now I could end the sermon there because that's enough for us to know. But it leads us to this question. If Jesus is the hero of the story, if he's the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament, then why do we need to read the Old Testament? If this whole story points to Jesus and then it's fulfilled in Jesus, then why do we still need this story? Isn't it obsolete? Shouldn't we just read the New Testament? You know, before the iPod came out, um, there were, you know, other MP3 players. The iPod just made it famous. And I remember, um, you know, after a few years, I think I was in like ninth grade, I was saving all of my uh, birthday money and Christmas money and graduation money. And this, and this MP3 player came out. It was a Samsung Yep, I think it was called. And it was so expensive. It was the most expensive one they had at Best Buy. They had just released. And it was so expensive because it held a whopping 258 megabytes of songs. And I was so proud of it, but you laugh now because we all know that the cheapest smartphones will at least hold, what, 32, 64, 128 gigabytes of songs. In fact, now you don't even need that kind of memory because you stream songs, you don't download the songs. And so as soon as the iPod came out and then the Nano and then the Mini and then every other kind of MP3 player and phone and streaming service, then more and more that MP3 player, that Samsung became obsolete. I didn't need it. So I threw it away. I had kept it thinking maybe one day it'll be worth something. And then I realized it's just taking space because that's what you do. Now, the question is, if Jesus fulfills 1 Samuel 17 and he's a greater David, he's a better David, why do we need 1 Samuel 17? And here's why. What the New Testament tells us in propositional truths, the Old Testament illustrates for us in stories and imagination. What Paul writes in points of his well-articulated, logically constructed arguments and epistles, the Old Testament illustrates for us with wonderful stories, illustrating for us truth with flesh and bone. And so we go back to the Old Testament, not because we find in it something new, but because we find the same truth told in a new way. That's the beauty of this story. When you read David and Goliath, the spirit uses it to ignite fresh zeal in our hearts, to excite us by fanning dying embers into a raging hot flame. Because what it does is it presents same old gospel truths, but now in new doxological ways. The point of the stories in the Old Testament are to help us worship. And so we listen to the story yet again, even if you've heard it countless times, to worship. So that the story would draw our eyes to our good God. Here's a gospel truth this morning. God promises us an ultimate victory through our conquering king. An old gospel truth said and shown in a new surprising way. God promises us an ultimate victory through our conquering king. Now, we've been reading this story, this chapter, and it's our third week in it. Uh, I had a friend who preached on it a couple weeks ago, and he preached in one sermon. And I said, how in the world could you preach all of this story in one sermon? He said, I don't know. I just did it. How long are you going to take? Ten weeks? And I said, well, I was really tempted. I'm going to stop at three weeks. But all of the story, what we've read so far, 47 verses is leading up to where we pick up today. Today is the climax. I mean, if, if this story was a pay-per-view fight, I mean, this would be the Royal Rumble, the clash of champions, the rally in the valley. 
Our story picks up right where the action begins. Verse 48, look with me. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. Now David runs toward the battle line and this is intentional. It's contrasted against the Israelites because earlier we read in verse 24 this, all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, they saw Goliath fled from him and were much afraid. So it's contrasted because the whole company of Israel saw Goliath marching toward the line and they ran the other way. David sees the Goliath walking toward the line and David runs toward him. And he runs toward him for two reasons. There's two reasons he's eager. First, this giant of a man, this Goliath has, has been a terrorist holding Israel in fear. And so he says, I'm going to defeat and battle this giant. How dare he do such a thing? But the second and more important reason that David runs toward the line is to silence this blasphemer's defiance against God. You see, this is the part we don't really focus on much in the story. We often miss it. But David runs toward the line because Goliath stands as a pagan heathen who is not only blaspheming Israel and their army, but Israel's God. And so we read then in verse 49, David runs and David put in his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. Now, so much has been written about what these five stones represent. And I remember in seminary in an Old Testament class, a professor told me that growing up, when he learned this in Sunday school, I think it was in the 60s or 70s, he learned that the five stones of David represented faith, hope, love, prayer, and daily Bible reading. <laughs> Another pastor said that the five essential things in the Christian life are what's represented in these five stones. Worship, prayer, fellowship, evangelism, and tithing. <laughs> Now, what do these five stones mean? Some people say the five stones show David's doubt. He only needed one stone to fight Goliath, but he took five because he didn't really trust God. And then other scholars say, well, no, the five stones represent that David really trusted God because later in 2 Samuel 21, there's four more giants. And as David was actually going out saying, well, I'll take on all of them. If you ask me, why did David choose five stones? I have an answer. It's much simpler. He chose five stones because his little shepherd's pouch fit about five stones. <laughs> you see, here's the thing. If you focus on the number five, you lose the focus of the story. Your focus should actually be on the stones. Now, it should be on the stones for one of two reasons. The first, you probably already understand. Goliath is shown to have all the advanced military technology, right? The javelin, the spear with the 15-pound head, all of the armor, a large sword, and you go, oh, it's to show that David's the underdog. He has a sling, he has a stone, and so it's God's power. The battle belongs to the Lord. And Oh, that's the point of the stones. And that is one part of the stones. But there's another part that might be more important because there is a symbolic spiritual meaning. By slinging a stone at Goliath, David was executing God's divine judgment over Goliath as the king of Israel should have always done. You see, when Goliath mocks and defies the armies of Israel, he is actually mocking and defying Israel's God, Yahweh, the Lord. And David is so offended by him for that reason. In fact, if you notice, we know the story is about a man named Goliath, but David himself never calls him Goliath. David doesn't even treat him 
like he's a person. He treats him like he's an animal. Remember what he compares him to? Lions and bears? Philistine gets it. He gets the slight. That's why he says, am I a dog to you? And David says, yeah. So how does David refer to Goliath? Well, two times. This is, he calls Goliath, this uncircumcised Philistine. This uncircumcised Philistine. Now, when David calls Goliath this uncircumcised Philistine, that's not a comment on, you know, some appearance or some physiological feature of him. He's not looking at David and going, or Goliath and going, oh yeah, he's, Philistine. he's uncircumcised Philistine. Just like you would look and say, oh, that, that, that bald Philistine or that freckled Philistine. That's not what he's saying. This is a spiritual insult. This uncircumcised Philistine, all the men of Israel would go, oh, those are fighting words. Because circumcision in Israel was a sign of the covenant. It was a sign that you were part of Israel, that you were part of the covenant people of God, recipients of the covenant promise of God. And so even if you were Gentile, if you weren't a Jew, but you entered into God's covenant, you would be circumcised. And so when David refers to Goliath as his uncircumcised Philistine, he's basically insulting Goliath saying, you are outside of God's promise. You are not part of the covenant community. You are a pagan blasphemer. How dare you stand in the valley of Elah and fight for this land when this land is for God's covenant people, not for you. I will shut you down. And so he stands, Goliath, blaspheming God. But here's the thing. In Israel, there was a law found in the book of Leviticus that told you what to do when somebody blasphemed the name of the Lord as Goliath did. If you look at Leviticus 24, verse 16, it says this. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. The punishment for blaspheming the name of the Lord is to be stoned. So here stands Goliath, guilty of this very sin. And the question for Israel is, who will execute his punishment? Who will judge this man for dishonoring God's holy name? And when Leviticus says all of the congregation should do it, we had just read all of the congregation had fled. When all the men of Israel should have stood up to do it, who stands in their place? The boy David. The boy David says, I will honor the name of the Lord. I will execute divine justice. And so what does he do? He administers this divine justice over the pagan foreigner by stoning him. So we read in verse 49, the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. You see, the stone is not simply about lesser resources and the might of God in defeating the greater resources. The stone is really about David as a king Israel truly needed executing divine kingly justice when everyone else failed. You know, Goliath lay there then. He got right, he got smacked in the head and he falls down. The scene was very much like, you know, New Year's Day in a Korean home where you were bowing down in front of somebody, head to the ground, you know, asking for some money. Goliath is there, head to the ground. But that's very intentional. Because what the author is doing is he is showing you a connection to another part in the story. 
Because what happened earlier, 12 chapters earlier in 1 Samuel 5, is that the Ark of God, it represents the presence of God, is captured by the Philistines and is brought into the house of Dagon. Now, Dagon is the, one of the major Philistine uh, false deities. And so it's brought into his temple, the Ark of God is. And here's what we read in 1 Samuel 5. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. You see what happened there? Symbolically, this pagan statue is face down before the Lord in a posture of submission. Why? Because the Lord conquers his enemies. And so what is true of their God is true of their champion. Here, Goliath now lays face down before the Lord's anointed as a defeated and conquered foe. And David stands over him as the justice-upholding, God-honoring king. And we need to pause and think about that first section for for a minute, because again, the point is not simply that little weakness overcomes great strength and you can do anything through God who strengthens you, like win a football game. (laughs) That's not what it means. The the point of this passage is David is the king Israel needed because he is the justice upholding God honoring king. And that's important because if David foreshadows Christ, he points to Christ and David is this kind of king. The question is, what kind of king is Jesus? And the first thing it teaches us is that Jesus is a king who always judges righteously. Human courts may fail to give right verdict because they are fallible men, but God always gets it right. And other times when our systems of justice give right verdicts, They do not always administer right justice and right punishment. But God never gets it wrong. You see, in the end, no matter how many things play out in our lives, God will always punish evil and correct injustice. And that is the great Christian hope. That's what he does as a king. He brings that which is out in darkness. He brings it out, not only to expose it, but to eradicate it. There are so many injustices in this world. The problem is here in America, we are only focused on the injustices in our nation. But you open your eyes and you see, you go to Cambodia and you see sex trafficking. You go to Vietnam and you see child labor. You go to China and you see the immense persecution of the government against churches. All over the world, abortion. All over the world, Racism. There are injustices everywhere. The only thing is, we're so coddled that we look at just the issues in our world. But if you actually take a step back and you look at the news of all that's happening in the world and you look at all the injustices happening, it is overwhelming. It is absolutely despairing. Evil wears many faces. It has an international passport. It's found in every country all over the world. And quite frankly, there's nothing we can do truly Accept the hope that we believe in a conquering king who rules with perfect justice that he always upholds. Now, this justice of God is not a justice according to the human determination of justice. I determine true justice looks like this. And so whether God does that or not means he's just or not. No, no, no. God is just. So when God administers justice, that is true justice. God always judges with true justice for his righteousness is always perfect righteousness. First Chronicles 18 verse 14 told us, 
about King David. So David reigned over all Israel and he administered justice and equity to all his people. And that was King David. So how much more do we look forward to the justice and equity promised by King Jesus, the greater David? The one who will conquer all evil when he returns again. Amen and hallelujah. And the story continues in verse 51. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took the sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. And this is an incredibly violent scene, but it's incredibly important. You know, for those with a sensitive conscience, you know, you read this and it, it kind of turns your stomach, disgusts you. If you read this as an eight-year-old kid, you're getting excited. This is why you read the Bible. Now, he cuts off his head, and that word head appears four times in about 15 verses toward the end of the chapter. And because in the ancient text, there is no way of doing all caps or all bold. What you did to emphasize something is you repeated it. Now, why would the author be drawing our attention to Goliath's head? And it's because when King David cuts off Goliath's head, he was doing more than foreshadowing a promise to come. He was actually looking backward. David was actually fulfilling in shadow form a promise of deliverance that God had made thousands of years earlier in the Garden of Eden. You know, in Genesis 3, 15, Adam and Eve, they disobey God. They break that covenant. They're cursed because of their sin. They're exiled from the garden with a flaming sword held by a mighty cherubim to guard entrance back into God's holy presence. And yet there is still a promise. Because God says in Genesis 3, 15, in a judgment over the serpent, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And this was the first promise of the gospel, the proto-evangelion. God was saying in that first promise that he would send the offspring of Eve. He would send the offspring of Judah. He would send the offspring of David who would come into the world to be the hero of mankind's story. Genesis 3.15 was the first promise of a conquering king revealed again in 1 Samuel 17 and finally fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because in the garden of Eden, Adam was supposed to crush the head of the serpent. And yet he failed. So Jesus came as the great head crusher. In the valley of Elah, Saul was supposed to slay Goliath of Gath, but he failed. So Jesus came as the mighty giant slayer. And so here in the valley of Elah, Goliath stood before Israel's army, dressed, as we're told in verse 5, in a coat, a chain of armor, which the Hebrew word describes actually to be a chain of, of scaly armor. It's the same word used to describe the scales on a fish, the scales on a dragon, and the scales on a serpent. For here stands Goliath, the offspring of that ancient one, standing to defy God. This is not just a physical battle. This is a spiritual battle. And he's questioning Israel. Will God really be faithful to that Genesis 3.15 promise? Here I stand about to bruise your heel. Where is the one who will come and bruise my head? Until David steps up. As the offspring of Eve. 
as the offspring of Judah. And yet David is just a placeholder in history. He stands in anticipation of a greater king to come. He has one foot rooted in the promises of God in the Garden of Eden. He has the other foot rooted in fulfillment of God in Jesus Christ. And so one would come as a greater David when God would send his one and only son to come and battle the enemy of our sin and death and Satan. And do you remember the story? David, such a little boy with such a big mouth, this great confidence said, I will cut off your head. And Goliath's looking at him going, with what? You have a sling and you have some stones. And yet David conquered Goliath and won his triumphant victory in the most ironic of ways because what was his weapon of victory? It was a sword, but whose sword? It was Goliath's sword. Verse 51, then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. With what? With Goliath's sword. Goliath came to battle wielding a sword meant to kill David, but David used that sword to kill Goliath. The very instrument Goliath believed would seal David's fate, David used to seal Goliath's fate. And that points to the great irony of the gospel because one day the greater David would come and the very cross that Satan believed would seal Jesus's fate, Jesus used to seal Satan's fate. The very instrument meant to end Jesus was used by Jesus to end sin. And so friends, something did die on that day on Calvary's Hill. The cross did kill something, but it was not your savior. It was your sin. And in that great irony, the reversal of the gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ through cross, tomb, and resurrection conquered as your king, your giant problem. And this is why the gospel is not self-help saying, trust in your personal victories, but trust in the victory of Christ for you. This is truly good news. You see what happens after David kills Goliath, we read in verse 51 and 52. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron. You see, in the same way that David's victory led to Israel's victory, so too Christ's victory assures our victory. The conquering king assures that we will conquer. That's why Romans 8 says we are more than conquerors through Christ. Because in Christ, we have a conquering king. So all the fear you have in you in this life is not replaced by faith when you conquer your fears. Fear in you is replaced with faith when all the reasons you have to fear are conquered. Christ conquers those very reasons with his death and resurrection when he judged evil and crushed its head. Here's the secret to the Christian life. Stop trying to conquer your fears and your enemies and all the giant obstacles of your life. Stop trying to conquer your daily Goliaths. Stop trying. Start trusting. Start trusting the conquering king who has come, who has promised you deliverance. Stop trying, start trusting, look to Jesus. Because he is the hero you need to save you. He is the champion you need to fight for you. He is the king you need to defend you. 
so take heart and receive the encouragement that Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Rome when he said, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Now, if you're perceptive, you say, wait a minute, the God of peace will soon crush Satan. I thought he already crushed Satan. Well, he did crush Satan under Christ's feet. The promise now is the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. See, just as the Israelites had victory in their king's victory, so you have victory in Jesus's victory. You will soon crush Satan under your feet because of your conquering king. This is the hope of the gospel. As we wrap up now, I pray that the past three weeks has been an exercise in learning how to come to the Bible, not asking, how does this apply to me? but coming to the Bible and reflecting, look at what he's done for me. Because it's that reflection that will lead you to the praise and the adoration worthy of a king, the king, the confident king, the courageous king, and the conquering king, the Lord Jesus, the one you need and the one you have. Let's pray.